I will release the children through grade four as they head off to the classes that are prepared for them. Isn't it grace to hear the brass? I have to admit, I'm a little bit, um, you know, yeah, right. Yeah. There was, yeah, there was, yeah, well, amen. And the organ and the piano, yeah, but, but we're talking brass, Michelle. So, amen. I do, I do confess that I, I do, yeah, so, amen. It's good to be here. I am so excited to open the book of Acts with you today, and we've been talking about this, and I've had some of you who've contacted me and said, I thought we were going to go through Acts, and so now we start. And um, so I'll be preaching on the book of Acts today, and uh, yeah, so strap in. But what we're going to do is a big overview of the whole book so that we have a lens, if you will, that we'll be able to look through as we look at this, um, this amazing book over the next few months here together. It's a powerful, powerful book, and I hope that you've found some time, and if you haven't, I'd encourage you to, to find a couple hours that you could just sit down and read through the whole book of Acts. I think sometimes for us, if we don't take the time to do that, we can, we can take all these little snapshots and, and we miss the whole overarching uh, emphasis of what the book is. So I'd encourage you to find some time over the next week or two, if you haven't already, or to do it again, to read through the whole book of Acts. And then to, to be able to take a look and see that these things that we're looking at today are really the, the overall points of what we'll be seeing one of the things I've come to appreciate about the book of Acts is that so many times I hear people say, we want to be like the early church. And, uh, and what does that mean, you know? And, and let's study the book of Acts so that we can, we can be exactly like that, that early church. And it occurs to me that they were a church in its infancy, if you will. And this past week on Tuesday night, I got a call, and so I ended up headed over uh, to the hospital in Elkhorn at 9 o'clock and got to hold my brand-new grandson, okay? And, um, yeah, amen. And he, he's a tiny little guy. Uh, his name is Grayson Charles. I, I'm calling him G. Charles. Um, but, you know, uh, but as, as I held him in my arms, I thought to myself, he doesn't know he's an infant, right? He, he doesn't know he's an infant. He's just, oh, hi. I'm sorry about the G. Charles thing, Glenn and Jean. Okay, it's all good. All right. So, <laughs> didn't realize the in-laws were here. Okay, it's good. <laughs> uh, you got the last name. All right, so, um, oh, I just really confused myself. Infant. Okay, good, thanks. All right, uh, so he doesn't realize he's an infant. He's just involved in growing, okay? And, and even at this stage, he's not even thinking probably about intentionally, you know, in a couple hours I'm going to need to eat again. He's not thinking about those things. He's just moving along. And, and I think as I look at the church in its infancy in Acts, in many ways, they didn't know they were the church in infancy. They were just, they were just growing, and they were growing as they were following Christ. They, they didn't think of themselves as the church even. They thought of themselves as the followers of the way. The way, Jesus. And the way that he had told them to live. And the way that he had told them to be. And so as we take a look into this book of Acts, and I'm so excited we're going to be looking at it, because I really believe within this study, there are things that will change us as a church. 
It's impossible for us to open God's word and walk away unchanged. Amen? Have you found that to be true in your life? One of the, one of the translations I, I really enjoy reading is the Phillips transla- translation. And John Phillips is the one who translated that. And it's a, it's a very easy translation to read. And so I, I love, like, if I'm going to sit down and read the book of Acts, I love to do that. And, and his translation was in the, in, the, in the 1950s. And his preface to that has this wonderful, um, wonderful uh, comment. It says, it is impossible to spend several months of close study in, uh, in this remarkable short book, conventionally known as Acts of the Apostles, without being profoundly stirred, and to be honest, disturbed. And so I thought about that, and I thought it's impossible for us to enter into a study of this book of Acts without being stirred, and in a way, disturbed. The reader is stirred because he's seeing Christianity, the real thing, in action for the very first time in human history. The newborn church, as vulnerable as any human child, having neither money or influence nor power in the ordinary sense, is setting forth joyfully and courageously to win the pagan world for God through Christ. The young church, like all young creatures, is appealing in its simplicity and single-heartedness. Here we are seeing the church in its first youth, valiant, unspoiled, a body of ordinary men and women joined in an unconquerable fellowship never seen before on this earth. Yet we cannot help but feel disturbed as well as moved. For this surely is the church as it was meant to be. It is vigorous and flexible. For these are the days before it ever became fat and short of breath through prosperity or muscle-bound over-organization. These men did not make acts of faith. They believed. They did not say their prayers. They really prayed. They did not hold conferences on psychosomatic medicine. They simply healed the sick. But if they were uncomplicated and naive by modern standards, we have to ruefully admit that they were open to the Godward side in a way that's almost unknown today. No one can read this book without being convinced that there is someone at work here besides mere human beings. Perhaps because of their very simplicity, perhaps because of their readiness to believe, to obey, to give, to suffer, and if need be, die, the Spirit of God found what he must surely always be seeking, a fellowship of men and women so united in love and faith that he can work in them and through them unhindered. Consequently, it is a matter of sober historical fact that never before has any small body of ordinary people so moved the world that their enemies could say, with tears of rage in their eyes, that these men have turned the world upside down. Isn't that great? So I think of that. And I think of this, this group of people who genuinely believed that God had come into their lives 
and genuinely believed that aside from the power of God, they could do nothing, and genuinely believed that God had entrusted them with the message that could change the world, and genuinely sought to have that message flow through them in such a way that it happened. And so I think as we look at the book of Acts, we can't help but at some level say, oh, God, do it again. Do it again. Do it here. Do it now. And so as we look at this book, I'm going to ask us to consider what does it mean for that to become a possibility? Faith in action. The verse that's a key verse of Acts, and we'll probably look at it several times throughout the, world, the year. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It's that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you're going to change the world. It's really our mission, isn't it? You're going to receive power, you'll know Christ, and you're going to go change the world. You're going to go make him known. And so that's why so many times this isn't unique to us. Maybe many of you have been, oh, new baby, that's great. Katie, it's good to see you. Sorry, squirrel. Okay, so as you, as you consider, I lost my place again, Becky. I shouldn't have done that, Katie. All right, but that was exciting. Katie's baby is new. All right. Where was I? Change the world. Okay. We're going to have to start over. <laughs> yes. God's power keeps the church focused on its mission. There's where I was. I was on the mission. S somebody should have known that. I'm, I'm not taking this all by myself. Okay. The church focused on its mission. Now, we're not the only church to have that mission. We're back. Okay. We're not the only church to have that mission. Probably you've seen it in many of the churches that you've visited or that you've gone to, that, that this is the mission because it finds its roots in the very Word of God, in, in the Word of God as, he, as Jesus launched this new endeavor to know him and to make him known teaching them to believe everything I have commanded you, he said at the end of Matthew. And so as we look at that, we see that God's power keeps the church focused on its mission. The overarching theme of the book of Acts is that God's power keeps the church focused on its mission. And first thing we see is that God's power for the church is the Holy Spirit. This is what's going to be just prominent throughout the book of Acts, is that God's power for the church is the Holy Spirit. I had Gene do a sign for or a slide for me, and, and it shows all the times that the Holy Spirit's li listed in Acts or mentioned in Acts. And so we're going to look at each one of those today. No, we're not. <laughs> but we are over the next year. We're going to take a look at each one of these, and we're going to see that overwhelmingly what we see in, in, in this book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit is key. The power of the Holy Spirit is key. One of the verses I'd like to look at is Acts chapter 13, verse 2. Acts chapter 13, verse 2, where, where it says this. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work that I've called them. Boy, is that a significant verse. 
Think about that. While they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. The Holy Spirit spoke. The important thing to remember here is S.D. Gordon puts it this way. S.D. Gordon is an author from the early 1900s. In his, his book, Quiet Talks on the Holy Spirit, he says, never forget that the, the power is a person. The power is a person. And what he means by that is that the power is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is a person. He is one of the persons of the Trinity, and sometimes we get confused. Sometimes we, we think, well, the Holy Spirit is this, you know, because if I ask you to close your eyes and, and I ask you to picture God the Father, there will probably be an image that comes to your mind. You know, there's something you've seen that will spark an image in your mind. If I say picture the Son, you know, picture Jesus, something will come to your mind, maybe the picture we have in the hall, you know, but what, some picture will come to your mind. But if I ask you to picture the Holy Spirit, it gets harder, doesn't it? Because we don't have an image for the Holy Spirit. And, and in many ways, he's the most misunderstood person of the Trinity. But he is a person. You see, he's not an it. He's not, he's not a force. He's not, he has force, but he's a person of the Trinity, equal with God the Father and God the Son, sent by Jesus to empower the church for the mission that he's given it. And so as we look at this and we ask for the presence of the Holy Spirit, because really, if we, if we think of the, the truth that God's power for the church is the Holy Spirit, in some ways it's more than that. It's an awareness of his presence. It's an awareness of his presence that empowers the church. And so the, the Holy Spirit is a person, and we think, okay, a person's like, got a body and, and all of these things, but it's, he's not a person in that way. But he can be grieved. He can be lied to. And he can speak. And my prayer is always that the Holy Spirit speaks to us as we come to this place. That that we come in such a way that as we worship, and maybe you fast before you come. I don't know if any of you do that. Do any of you skip breakfast on Sunday and come with a heart that's ready to hear, maybe a little differently? How do you come prepared to hear what the Holy Spirit might say to you as we worship together here? Because the early church was so aware of the Holy Spirit and the power of his tangible presence that when they worshiped, they were seeking for the Holy Spirit to speak. In, in chapter 4, verse 31, it tells us that this church, when they prayed, after they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. See, the, the, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Have any of you ever been in a prayer meeting where the building was shaken? Think about that. You know, anything God's done anywhere, he can do here. Anything God's done at any time, he can do now. And anything God's done through anyone, he can do through us. That's Tozer. And it's true. The same God who empowered this, this infant church is the same Spirit of God who empowers us. Maybe the difference is they really believed that they needed 
the Holy Spirit. They really believed that apart from the Holy Spirit, they were incapable of living the life that God had called them to live. And I wonder if for, for the modern church, if that's the case. We're pretty self-sufficient in many ways, aren't we? We're, we're pretty capable of, of doing the things that we need to do. So do we really need the Holy Spirit's power? And of course, the answer to that is yes. And we know that at some level. But these people, you see, if they would have come to a saving knowledge of Christ in, in this time period, it would have meant that, they, that their families would turn their back on them, that their jobs would be lost, that they would have nothing but Jesus. And they would need the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives and they would perceive it differently than we do. So do I truly know the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life? Do we as a church rely on the power of the Holy Spirit? As we look at the book of Acts, it can't be denied, 41 times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the book of Acts. 41 times. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 93 times in Scripture. Three of those are in the Hebrew Scriptures. The other 90 are in the New Testament. And as we look at that 90 times in the New Testament, 41 of those are found in Acts, and another 13 are found in Luke, the author of this book, also the author of his gospel. So together, 54, over half of the occurrences of the Holy Spirit in the, in the New Testament. So the Holy Spirit is desperately needed by the church to do what God has called it to do. It is the power for the church. The second thing we'll see as we look at Acts and as we study it is that, that God's power for the church is sought through prayer. God's power for the church is sought through prayer. So, so if the power is the Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit is sought through prayer. And we see how many times in, in this book of Acts the prayer is mentioned. In each one of these places, in each one of these situations, it's clear that they're turning to God in prayer because they know that that is where they'll go to get the power they need to do that which they need to do. In chapter 4, verses 23 through 24, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Some background on this. I don't want to preach this whole message because we'll do it another time, but, but Peter and John had, had just miraculously healed someone. And the Jewish rulers called them in and said, you know, what's going on here? Because what we need to understand is Acts is this, this amazing book that tells us about this, this transition and, and it's lived out by people who so desperately loved God. And we must remember that as we look at this book, that, that, that these Jewish people who, 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 who Jesus had walked with, 
had been entrusted with the covenants of the, of the, of the, of the past. They were, they were entrusted with Abraham's covenant and, and Moses and, and David. They were entrusted with these covenants and these promises, the, the covenant of the law, and, and they were entrusted with them. And now, with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, this new covenant has been put in place, and it's, and it, and it's brought to complete and fulfill some of the old covenants, but, but even look forward to their final completion. And so as they're sitting in this, in this hinge of history, if you will, this transition that's being made. And, and, and so one of the places we see that, and that's where so many of the conflicts that come in the book of Acts come as these, these wonderful chosen people who've been entrusted with the truths of God are wondering, this truth is new and it seems so contrary to what we know. How do these two things go together? And, and one of those places is here in chapter four as we see the Jewish leaders and they're trying to wrestle through what does this mean? And, and they bring uh, John... John and Peter in, and they, and they can't. They don't have a category for it, so they tell them, "You've got to stop talking about Jesus." And then we pick it up in in verse eighteen, and it says, "They called them in." I'm in I'm in Acts four eighteen. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, "Which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to Him?" Isn't that a great question? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we've heard. Is that true in your life? Are you able to not help speaking about what you've seen and heard? I mean, are, are you so arrested by the presence of God in your life that you just can't help yourself? That's how it was for them. So after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide on how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Now we pick it up at 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they formed a committee to determine how the best way would be to handle the complaints that were coming in. Oh, it's different up there. When they heard this, they raised their voices in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. See, when, when, when it came and it was, they didn't spend time talking about how do we handle all the what ifs. They just went to the Lord. He said, Sovereign Lord. And, and I love the fact that what they do is they, they pray Scripture. They pray Scripture. And, and verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David. There's the Holy Spirit speaking in the Old Testament. Amen. Why do the nations rage? And when you look at Psalm 2, the incredible thing about this, and yeah, let's go. Okay, Psalm 2. And when you look at it, verse 8. Ask me, and I will make, God's saying, I will make the nations your inheritance and the end of the earth your possession. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm, and it's talking about how the nations of the earth belong to the Messiah. And so when this adversity came, they went to, the, they went to God and they said, God, 
we're calling on you because you have promised that you would make the name of Jesus known among the nations. And so we're trusting that you are going to do that through us and in us and in this situation, and we trust you with that. And the place where they were praying was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. See, they knew they knew that the power that they needed was sought by prayer. As they went to the Father and they said, God, these are your promises and we know that you are a promise-keeping God and so we ask you to keep your promise in our midst. And so when adversity came into their life, they sought God in prayer. There's a story of a woman, this is a true story, of a woman who was a recent convert, and she went home, and she was all decorated for Halloween, and she saw that the decorations she had weren't pleasing to the Lord, so she started taking the decorations down, and as she pulled one, a tack came and stuck in her eye and then went across her eye and destroyed her vision. Tammy, Barb said, may we pray for God to heal you? Oh, please, Tammy replied. Our numbers had increased by now. With, with more people. So 14 of us gathered around our friend and placed our hands upon her and began to beseech the Lord that this attack on Tammy's new faith would not have a full effect. We prayed for God to heal and restore her eye. The manifest presence of the Lord was very tangible and palpable. While each of us in turn asked the Lord for mercy to, on this new believer. What's happening while we were praying, Tammy? I asked, fiery heat is flowing into my body and going into my eyes, she said. The pain is subsiding. Do you want me to keep praying, someone asked. Oh, please, she said. And so we prayed for 20 minutes until the pain completely vanished. Tammy kept the pain on her eye, but all the pain and sensitivity to light had disappeared. We had just experienced the powerful agreement in prayer with each other. Of course, as anyone would, Tammy went to the doctor to determine how to adapt to the damaged eye. He removed the patch, his jaw dropped. What's wrong? Wrong? There's nothing wrong. There's absolutely nothing wrong. They prayed as the presence of the Lord came upon him, and they prayed until the presence of the Lord left, and this girl was healed. What do we do with that? Maybe you've been in parts of the world where this happens. It happens right here too, you know. But do we believe? Tuesday, around 2 o'clock, I, I got a text. It was from Tess. Blood pressure's high taking the baby early, please pray. So how do we respond to that? You know, do, do, do we quickly call the doctor? Do we, you know, how do we respond when those things happen? Do we pray because it, it seems hopeless unless we pray, or do we pray because we know that the power of God is available if we pray, when we pray? And so we begin to pray, and, and I was talking with the doctor, and the doctor said, 
I don't know if you all realize exactly how serious this was. Because Tessa's blood pressure was so high that, that there was great danger to the baby. And the baby was breached in such a way that the cord was wrapped around his neck. And so, I mean, it was all God stepping in as we prayed and sought him. He went before us. As we pray and say, God, you knit this baby together in the mother's womb. You are the one who has made him fearfully and wonderfully. And you are the sustainer of life. And God, we, we ask that you would step into this. You see, it's, it's the prayer that does that. It's the prayer that makes the lame walk. And we've seen that as well. Should we expect it to be happening? And some of you are going, this is uncomfortable, right? Because we're talking about things here that, that rely solely and completely on the power of God. And that brushes against our self-sufficiency. And could I say to you that those places where it's brushing against that are the places where, where the Holy Spirit is hindered in doing his work in our lives. Is my prayer life proof of my total reliance upon God? As a church, is it clear through our corporate prayer life that we're reliant upon God's power? The author of Forgotten Power here says, much power has been ignored by the church because of its failure in the area of prayer. I have a group of people who pray for me while I'm preaching, pray for you while I'm preaching. My preaching has no power apart from prayer. I have some of you who pray while I preach. I've noticed you. No, but... But there's a room where people gather and pray and pray that God's word would go forward boldly, that his word would go forward and that your hearts would be ready to receive, that, that it would have the power that God longs for it to have. See, the real power for the church is sought through prayer. The third thing we'll see as we look at the book of Acts is that God's power for the church empowers it to accomplish its mission. It's God's power that empowers the church to accomplish its mission. And that goes back to that verse 1-8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Can you imagine this small group of people 120, and they probably weren't all there when Jesus ascended into heaven. So a handful, literally in, in, in view of how many people there are in the world, a handful of people saying, you will be my witnesses. You will go out and you will make me known. The map gives us a little bit of an idea of that. It's, it's Judea, that brown area on the bottom left and Jerusalem's right towards the, the center kind of there and, and so they begin in Jerusalem and to consider that they'll go to Judea and then Samaria and remember it's not travel like we do 
It's not like, you know, they're going to get on a plane or anything like this. This is all on foot. It's without, it's, it's without you know, electronic communication. It's just this. It's, it's not even, the, the New Testament isn't even written yet. They're, they're functioning with the Hebrew Scriptures and what they've been taught. And they're going into Judea and Samaria. And Samaria, wait a minute, we don't like those people. Okay, the, the Samaria, Samaria we're, we're going into Samaria. You want us to go into Samaria? See, Samaria reminds us that God has entrusted us with the gospel with the people who are among us who are not like us. And they're maybe the people that we struggle with. And the gospel is for them as well. And then the uttermost parts of the world. And the next map gives us an idea of what that means. It's like this, this huge thing. The Roman Empire from the little point down here in Jerusalem and and to the whole part of the, of the whole world. And listen, this is, this is at a time when no lights, no motor cars, not a single luxury, you know? And Okay, all right, sorry. I really thought you'd get that. Okay, so, but they're going off, and, and John Phillips says this. This is kind of a long quote, but it's really good. Life was only an incident. It was lived with a due sense of responsibility as a preface to sharing the timeless life of God himself. To these men, the world was only a part, and because of the cumulative result of human sin, a highly infected and infectious part of God's vast created universe, seen and unseen. They trained themselves therefore, and attempted to train others not to be taken in by this world, not to give their hearts to the world, and not to conform to its values, but to remember constantly that they were only temporary residents and that their rights of citizenship were in the unseen world of reality. The great difference between present-day Christianity and that of which we read in Acts is that to us, it's primarily a performance. To them, it was a real experience. Isn't that amazing? For us, it's a, it's a performance. And even as I speak, what we do is we go to, okay, what do I need to do? What's the list? What do I need to do? How do I need to do it? And I can check it off, and I've done it well. And for us, it's performance. For them, it was a real experience. See, for them, what happened was Jesus came into their lives and changed their lives. It wasn't like they thought, hey, you know, I'm missing a little something. I think I'll take Jesus and I'll add it into that and then I'll feel better about myself and I'll be able to get through my terrible life. It wasn't like that. For them, it was an understanding that their sin had so separated them from God and they longed for the relationship with God that they were designed to have and they turned to God and they said, God, I realize that I've separated myself from you. I want to follow the way. I want to exchange my life of, of darkness, of death, of sin, of hurt, of pain, of, of suffering, of bitterness, of anger, of unforgiveness. I want to exchange that life for your life and your life of truth. I want to make the exchange, and I want you to come into my life. And the Holy Spirit came to indwell them. The power of God came into them and they were new creations. They were not the same. They had completely changed because of the presence of God in their lives. 
It wasn't about what they did. It was about the fact that they knew they were changed. Do we, do, do we, do we live that way? Do I? Do I fully embrace the fact that I am a new creation? I'm changed. I am indwelled with God. Amen, John. I have the power of God within me. If, if we long to see happen through us what happened through the, the, the early church, we have to come to the place where we exchange the pursuit of this world for the pursuit of his world, his kingdom. To these men, it is quite plainly the invasion of their lives by a new quality of life altogether. They do not hesitate to describe this as Christ living in them. We are practically driven to accept their own explanation, which is that their little human lives had, through Christ, been linked up with the very life of God. Whew. Are you tingling? No. Should I read it again? Without going into wearisome de- historic details, we need to remember that these, these letters were written and the lives they indicate were led against a background of paganism. There were no churches, no Sundays, no books about the faith, slavery, sexual immorality, cruelty, callousness to human suffering, and a low standard of public opinion were universal. Traveling and communications were chancy and perilous. Most people were illiterate. Many Christians today talk about the difficulties of our times as though we should have to wait for better ones before the Christian religion can take root. It's heartening to remember that this faith took root and flourished amazingly in conditions that would have killed anything less vital in a matter of weeks. Do do you get that? What we have is the hope of the world. We have the absolute hope for the world. And it is vital. And it is necessary. And it is unstoppable. These early Christians were on fire with the conviction that they had become, through Christ, literally sons of God. They were pioneers of a new humanity, founders of a new kingdom. They still speak to us across the centuries. Perhaps if we believed what they believed, we might achieve what they achieved. They literally believed they were sons of God. They literally believed they were children of God entrusted with their father's mission. And they made a difference. And they caused trouble all over the world. I love that in John 17, 6. It's a, or Acts 17, 6, I'm sorry. Great quote there. And when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Wouldn't it be great if that's what we started hearing around Walworth County? Those people from Calvary that have been causing all this trouble have now come here. Whew. Man. Am I using the power God has given me to fulfill the mission he's given me? And as a church, are we focused on his mission for us? 
Up in a little town in Maine, things were pretty dead some years ago. The churches were not accomplishing anything. There were a few godly men in the churches, and they said, here we are, only uneducated, but something must be done in this town. Let us form a praying band. We will all center our prayers on one man. Who shall it be? They picked out one of the hardest men in town, a hopeless drunkard, and they all centered their prayers on him. In a week, he was converted. They centered their prayers upon the next hardest man in town, and soon he was converted. Then they took up another and another, until within a year, two or three hundred people were brought to God, and fire spread out into all the surrounding countryside. Definite prayer for those in the prison of house Definite prayer for those in the prison house of sin is the need of the hour. R.A. Tori. Are we praying for those? Listen, each one of us knows somebody who needs Jesus. And as I just said that, somebody's face came to your mind probably. Pray for that person. Find someone to pray with you for that person. Find 10 someones to pray with you for that person until that person comes to know the Lord. Finally, God's power sustains the church amidst persecution. Eight, one, chapter 8, verse 1, it says that, that that day, such fierce persecution burst out against the church, the day that, that, that uh, Stephen was stoned. And and then in, in Acts eleven nineteen it tells us that those who had been scattered by persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed father, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. See, persecution comes in, and, and it's through persecution that God's power sustains the church and keeps the church focused on its mission. It's through persecution that, and listen, there's things in your life that come, and you're thinking, man, this is persecution. You know, Peter tells us, do not be surprised at the painful trials you were experiencing as though something strange were happening to you. Isn't that an encouraging verse? See, don't be surprised by that. These things have come into your life so that the glory of Christ can be revealed. And listen, so many times when you experience persecution, it places you somewhere where there's someone you can talk to about the truth about Jesus. And God is moving his church. God is moving his people to be in the place that he knows they need to be to share the light of the gospel. And so many times when we come upon persecution, we cry out and say, God, I'm in a dark place. And he says, I know it's a dark place. I sent you to be the light. And one match lights a room and dispels the darkness. And so many times we see persecution, and we'll see this in the book of Acts, and one other thing we're going to do this year is on the fourth Sunday of every month, we're going to set aside a time to look at the persecuted church around the world because it's, it's, it's us. We're, we're the church. We're going to take an opportunity to look at it and consider it. And, and, and at 2 o'clock on the fourth Sunday of the month, we're going to have a prayer time in the prayer room where we'll come together and pray for the persecuted church. 
There's information out in the lobby if you, if you want to try to get your head around that a little bit. But it would, be, it would be wrong for us to go through the book of Acts and think that it's all about us. We have to be aware of what's happening in the world. I have a video for you to watch.